0: Yeah.
1: trek about the original series my name is matt from austin and as always coming to us from houston is my brother ken say hello ken
0: live long and prosper
1: I just realized i don't have my earphones on
0: me neither oh, you should do that. Do that. we're both amazing we're, both amazing. <laughs> we're like professionals
1: So before we even jump into anything in this episode, I want to say this. I was flipping through the channels the other night, and on uh, BBC America, there was a, uh, a third season episode of Original Trek, which looked... Everybody just looked different. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, Shatner looked like older version of himself. You know what I mean? He's got these tight, like, sideburns going. Jimmy Dewin's put on a little more weight and has a lot more hair and looks also a lot like you will see him 10 years later in motion picture. motion picture. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, it's funny because it looks like it's I, I mean, it, it just it was so crazy to me to look at, especially, you know, how into these first seasons we are right now. That looking at that, I don't even know what episode it was. I meant to look and then I didn't, but it was, I was like, this is crazy. I don't even know what's going on here. I have to change the channel.
0: <laughs> I have to go lie down.
1: <laughs> exactly. I don't even know who these people are anymore. <laughs> so, uh, At this point that we are at in the filming of all of these episodes, we uh, get to a a two-week hiatus. Uh, There are two reasons for this, partly just due to the fact that it was Labor Day coming up, but also due to the fact that the, the show was actually going to be on the air. People were going to be able to see it for the first time, so they wanted to make sure that they got Nimoy and Shatner out there talking about the show, NBC sort of put out this mandate, like, hey, let's not call it so much science fiction, huh? Can we just call this, like, Adventures in Space or something? You know, as if that was going to, like, hide, hide what it was. They even went so far as to put, like, Grace Lee Whitney as, like, the third lead. She was in a bunch of publicity photos. She even did a couple of interviews with the guys. The other good thing about this time period was it gave the crew time to work out some of the kinks, uh, at this point, all of Star Trek was behind schedule and over budget. Everybody was working the candle
0: at both ends. And, you know they're over budget, and yet we keep coming across like these crazy soft, uh, you know, cost-saving measures, reusing sets, you know, doing yep. doing you know crazy stuff to save money here and there. You know, like uh, we didn't mention it. You know, in Miri, the episode that we just talked about, they used the Mayberry set. And oh, I use think it. I did mention that actually. And they, yeah, and they're going to use it again in uh, in a city on the edge of forever. And so, I mean, there's got to be these these core things like special effects and the things that are part of making a science fiction show, as opposed to you know, police drama or.
1: Well, and not only that, but almost like the first of its kind. I mean, we've talked about like Lost in Space and you know, Voyage of the uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the sea deep yeah <laughs> deep sea whatever anyway but you know so like this is the first time water exactly come. uh this is the first time you know we've had to deal with like a different planet every week and a different space and you know these crazy aliens that we sometimes encounter and you know how do we deal with these it's something that they no one's ever really had to deal with before
0: yeah as opposed to like well we need a different park every week for the police to make the arrest right exactly exactly and apparently that's going to involve, one, shooting the same park from a bunch of different angles, and two, having a guy who goes out and looks for parks that we can use.
1: Exactly. So now they have to build them, or they have to you know, reuse that rock but put it in a different place. You know, that, those
0: kinds of things. Or in this case, we're going to light the sky with, with red at the bottom and purple at the top.
1: That's right. So again, uh, with everything being behind as it was... Roddenberry sent Robert Justman to go check on the special effects. He found uh, that there was a major problem with shooting some of the effects, and that was the interior lighting that they had put inside the model was actually causing it to heat up. And so, so if they left the lights on too long inside the model and left the lights on the outside of the model on too long, the, the, the model would start to melt. So by the time that they adjusted their aperture and their optics and everything Uh-oh. else, the, they'd have time for three or four frames, literally three or four frames, before they had to shut down and wait 20 minutes and then start up again. As you can imagine, that definitely caused some uh, time problems. Uh, in fact... Uh, yeah,
0: so you end up just paying everybody for three or four frames worth of work.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, so later, uh, a week or so from now, Roddenberry goes and starts just to see, you know, the footage. Like, just, you know, plug it all together. We'll run it through the reel and see what it looks like. And in their months and months of work that they had already done, they had about two minutes of footage, which Justman said was about six of which were usable, and the rest were passable, and the rest was just tossed out. But it was with uh, some of these pieces that didn't work. It was with some of these pieces that were ends of scenes that didn't work that they put together the opening sequence, Roddenberry had been waiting until the very last minute to finally write something down and so his original draft for the opening sequence of Space the Final Frontier goes something like this. This is the adventure of the United Spaceship Enterprise. Assigned a five-year galaxy patrol, the bold crew of the giant starship explores the excitement of strange new worlds, uncharted civilizations,
0: and exotic people." These are their voyages and its adventures. Uncharted civilizations? Yes. This totally sounds like Captain Cook, right?
1: You're right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, they're out there. We just haven't charted them yet. We've got to send Captain Cook out to figure out, you know, how the Pacific works.
1: So uh, John Black, the script supervisor, took it. He did a rewrite, which sounds a little more familiar. Space. Space. The Final Frontier. This is the story of the USS Enterprise. Its mission, a five-year patrol. To seek out and contact alien life. To explore the infinite frontier of space. Where no man has gone before. Stealing, of course, the, the title of episode one, as it was filmed. Where no man has gone before. <clears throat> so, of course, Roddenberry took it. All you gotta do is one. take
0: those together and put them
1: together that's pretty much what he did ronberry took it rewrote it one last time and that's when, uh what we got today um of course there are many you know we've heard many times that shatner went in there did it right on the first go as he was you know he was actually pulled off dagger of the mind to go and record this opening sequence while that is technically true it is also technically not true because uh according to john black uh shatner recorded it did it perfectly but there was a bump in the recording so they had to re-record it so it wasn't exactly the first take but Shatner still nailed it so so as we talked about in the last episode the script supervisor John Black was leaving uh, again he was just tired of you know Roddenberry rewriting the stories of famous uh, famous writers that had come, uh, that had written, you know, amazing things before. Uh, but really what he hated even more was, you know, him going out to these writers and being like, no, 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 this is a writer's show, you know, what you write is going to be put on air. And then, of course, Roddenberry doing the re- final rewrite on it and kind of making him look like a dunce so at this point, too, Robert Justman, the producer, he had a breakdown during all of this, so he took a trip to Hawaii while on this hiatus. Uh, the actors had it no less difficult, of course. Nimoy would arrive at about 6 in the morning to get the makeup done for his ears, you know, waking up at 5 or whatever, and being there till 7, 7.30 some nights, and then even an hour later to take uh, the ears off and all of his makeup as well. Uh, DeForest Kelly was later quoted as saying, That first year nearly killed us all.
0: No no wonder he's drinking so much in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> right? Clearly.
1: It's probably all real, too. So once on the air, uh, uh, Star Trek had found mediocre, re- mediocre reviews. Uh, it wasn't reviewed very well in the first episode, which, of course, as you recall, the first aired one was The Man Trap. NBC decided that they weren't really happy with Star Trek until they saw the ratings. Trek pulled 46% of the viewers on its opening premiere night. That's pretty amazing. Going up against my three sons, I do believe. Uh, Lucy sent a nice letter basically saying how proud and happy she was. Saying, yay, we have a hit on our hands. And signed it, love, Lucy. So then after the break, the crew comes back. And uh, they're set to record Conscience of the King. Where we are this week. Talking about Conscience of the King. Uh, This was an episode that uh, you were saying beforehand that you didn't know it as well. Um, I... uh, Didn't know it at all. There was nothing even remotely that I remembered about this episode.
0: I remember the beginning, the question about Izzy Kodos, you know, Izzy the actor, this conundrum. I remember the basic plot line of how it turned out. You know, clearly I I have a, what I would say is probably the memory of watching it as a child. Yeah. And so I kind of, I know what the story is. And two, I've probably seen the beginning more times than I've seen the whole story through. Fair. Oh, it's this episode. For whatever reason, you know, di- you know, dinner would, would interrupt the show or whatever takes a child away from television.
1: Well, even t- still, when we first see Kodos, like we see him in that opening teaser, and then we don't see him again for like another like 40 minutes into the show. Yeah. So uh, the writer of this was Barry Trivers. He loved both Shakespeare and was sensitive to the pain of those who had witnessed the Holocaust. So he decided to put them together for this very thoughtful episode of Trek. If we think about it, you know, this is something you've sort of mentioned, putting things into the time in which, you know, the, the episodes were filmed. You've mentioned this in previous episodes. If we think about it, too, coming into this episode, only 20 years had passed since World War II. So the idea of the Holocaust, the idea of what was done... Uh, was probably pretty fresh on the minds of the uh, of the American viewing public.
0: I also believe they were still finding Nazis. Very possible. I wanted to look up when when Eichmann was located. You know, you know, the whole Eichmann story. So he's uh, he's one of the top Nazis. You know, he's he's in the second tier. You know, he's not Goring or or, uh, you know, Hitler. But he. He was was
1: found guilty. Sorry. He was found guilty of his war crimes and hanged in
0: 1962. There you go. That's Eichmann, right? Right. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. So this was a big, big deal. And uh, so it's four years earlier than than Trek, than this our episode. There's other lesser Nazis who were, you know, hunted down and found. You know, famously, there's this concern that a bunch of them made their way to Argentina or Brazil. The idea that you'd have these guys that were had committed these crimes, were out there somewhere, and, you know, passing themselves off as somebody else, I think was a live issue for audiences in 1966.
1: So jumping into a little bit of the script, some of the early script ideas that they had notes on were uh, putting Spock into the role of Horatio from Hamlet, you know, warning against rashness, while Kirk, like Hamlet, is intent, uh, like Hamlet, is intent on learning the truth and is, you know, ready to punish the villain in the end. Uh, also in early drafts, uh, they were going to have Kirk witness. They were going to have Kirk's father be part of the atrocity that happened. Uh, they decided to get rid of this because they didn't want to, you know, mess with his backstory too much. Hem themselves in. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They were afraid it was going to hem them in for future ideas. So then of course, Riley's family is the one who gets uh, toasted instead.
0: And we get to see Kevin Riley again.
1: And we get to see Kevin. Yeah, we sure do.
0: Which is this? You know, it's 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 nice. They've got this little bit of continuity that they're building up. We have a, a character like Kevin Riley. Right. Uh, do you know how many times we've seen him now? It's only the because of course he. It's only the second time, right? He he featured heavily in, in naked time. At uh, the naked time, right? Yeah. So bringing him back to give him some backstory. You know, creates the sense that, oh, wait, this this isn't purely episodic television. Right. These are serials. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, there's almost six episodes between the two episodes when they aired. But even still, yeah, it's a nice little bit of continuity there.
0: Well, in a sense, that makes it better. Because if you've got an actor who's in two episodes back to back, then it's like, well, here were these two bits where they have this guy. But to have six actors is like he came back. Oh, the people! Just because we don't see them, they're not gone. Yeah, they're still out there. Exactly. They could come back at any time and be part of another story.
1: So uh, Roddenberry again used his uh, wacky tactics of uh, trying to trick Travers into a fourth rewrite. Uh, he basically said, <laughs> he basically said, you know, if you do me another rewrite, I'll make sure that you get another episode, and I'll be able to pay you more then, as opposed to giving you money now. But uh, Cashman, the, uh, the, the writer of this book that I've been reading, you know, brought up the question: If we, if we wonder why Trivers, you, know, who did this episode and Spees is the guy who wrote the last episode, um, couldn't quite get it right after so many drafts, the answer may come down to these few things, which are, you know nobody had really seen an episode yet, it wasn't even on TV. You know So here are these guys sort of writing in a bubble. you know, they don't know the feel of the show. Uh, and the second reason, which is also part of the first reason is, is that they don't, they don't understand the voices yet. They haven't heard the voices. They don't know what the voices are. And there are nothing else like these characters on TV. You know, if you look at, you know, some of the wild, wild west episodes, you know, that we've been talking about, like Gunsmoke and Bonanza, you know, you know what the sheriff is supposed to sound like, you know what the town drunk is supposed to sound like. So when you suddenly have this brand new show with all these characters that are completely unexpected and nobody knew any before, how are you actually supposed to write for those?
0: Right, which is why I think that it feels so much like the Navy, like the Air Force, like, uh, I mean, to a certain extent, the Army, in which... Everybody knew how a GI or a a guy who'd who'd been in the war was supposed to talk and supposed to act. We all knew, you know, various characters from from the war.
1: Right. So as we said, uh, Bruce Hyde here returns as Riley. Uh, he had a pilot going on at NBC that they were hoping were gonna was, they were gonna green light and go. So uh, they paid him <laughs> almost double <laughs> what he made last time on the show, just because wow. he had this other gig going. Yeah, he made like 650 for this episode, uh, as opposed to like between three and four that they uh, normally paid. They hired this man named Gerd Oswald to uh, direct this episode. He had actually uh, fled the Nazi regime in Europe and uh, came to the states. And in fact, his first movie was as uh, as an assistant director on 1939's Hitler: The Beast of Berlin. So he kind of seemed like almost the perfect fit for this uh, episode. Arnold Moss, who plays Kodos, uh, had, uh, was a veteran of, you know, stage and uh, and of Shakespeare, he had played a lot of Shakespeare. In fact, he had uh, played TV's first Lear in 1953 on television. Barbara Anderson was 20 at the time she did this episode, playing Lenore, and uh, she too was a uh, had come from the stage and had also done a lot of Shakespeare, too, growing up, so uh, this was her first TV show; the first time she would ever be on TV. She would spend the next four years on TV's Ironsides, and would later meet up with Shatner again when he was on Mission Impossible.
0: So, I've mentioned before how a lot of the best episodes are are a combination of two other things. So, Mud's Women was both a police drama and a western, and this is full of Shakespeare. And we're hunting Nazis. So you've got these two kind of rich veins to draw from to, you know, kind of bring the best stuff in. We get lots of Shakespeare references. We get some Shakespeare dialogue. We get to uh, see two different plays performed. We also get this kind of live, you know, sensation that, that something is, you know, out of the headlines, like Law and Order. You know, we've, we've taken something that's real and we've put, we put in a story. But it's in space. We've got to read the space regulations when we want to know how many times a cat can move a guy around from engineering to communications. We don't just read the regulations. We read the space regulations. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so you get these, these good episodes because there's a lot of material. It's not just a thin, you know, remix of... of one or the other it's a deep remix of, of two sources plus it's it's set in star trek so it's got all the star trek stuff going on as well
1: uh all right well uh, that is all i had behind the scenes stuff for right now i say right. we, uh, hit the button and let's go captain's log starting it's five year mission So this was, uh, as we said, filmed 12th, but aired 14th. In fact, uh, they aired the two-parter of Menagerie before they uh, put this one on the air. Saving some dollars. That's right. So the first uh, image we get, right as the episode starts, is a dagger, a bloody dagger. Somebody has died. What's happening? We don't even know. Some nice uh, Elizabethan music plays in the background. Uh, now we notice that Kirk's in the audience. Okay, we must be at a play. Oh, it looks like it's it's Macbeth, but not Hamlet, right? The 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 title, Conscious of the King," right? That's uh, the play's the thing, where you know from Hamlet. So, but this isn't Hamlet. This is this is Macbeth. We'll save Hamlet for later. Uh, Kirk is but with. there's a king anyway, g- and he's got a
0: conscience. What?
1: Yes, exactly. Truth. So Kirk Good is plays. here, and it looks like he he's. He's he's with his brother? Is that I think is that Kirk's brother here? I don't know. Like that guy looks so much like Shatner, it was crazy. Uh, uh, so then he, he also says looks uh, like McCoy. You think he looks like McCoy?
0: When I first saw him Oh, okay. Um I, I thought he was sitting with McCoy. Of course McCoy doesn't have an eye patch, so as soon as he turns a little bit, you're like, Oh that's totally not McCoy.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> When did McCoy get an... When did the doctor become one-eyed? There's a story we need to see. <laughs>
0: Apparently he's a pirate.
1: <laughs> we hear here about Kodos for the first time. Kodos, the executioner. Could this be the man, we wonder? And clarinets take us into the credits. It's funny, I was thinking... Maybe... Yeah, I'll talk about it now. Um, it's funny because this, the... the, the, the Play on the ship. The the show that is happening on the ship feels a mm-hmm. lot like next generation. I feel like they did that like yeah. five, six times over the a course lot. of that run. So uh that felt very next generation to me. I thought that was kind of cool. Start eight two two wait. Sorry, not two two. Stardate eight, two eight one seven point six Kirk was brought here on false pretenses by his friend or his brother, I still can't tell which. Uh, called him here to say that uh some kind of MacGuffin was happening that was going to help people. Uh Kirk is a little pissed at his friend, you know. He's like
0: uh <laughs> there's a famine on another planet, and he's got a food.
1: Yeah, something about food. I don't know. It's supposed to help people, that's all I know. Yeah. Um <laughs> Kirk is a little pissed at his friend, right? Kodos is dead. But how can we tell the body was burnt beyond recognition? We learned that four thousand people were killed, similar to other historical tragedies. I notice. Um, it's funny. I always have a. I. I. I'm sure this is just me with my keen sense of like. TV and movie watching, but I always have a sixth sense when they're trying to hide one side of an actor's face. You know what I mean. So right, I okay. always feel like, oh, they're they're for some reason, they're only maintaining one side of him. I mean, he's not even getting up and, like, moving around like you thought he might. He's just sitting there sort of talking to, like Sh- – There's some blocking going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. There's sort of like Shatner – he's talking to Shatner, like, over his other shoulder almost, you know? So uh, mm-hmm. it didn't surprise me when suddenly, you know, he turns his head and there's, like, half his face is mangled or burned or something. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But yeah, yeah, so it was so funny because I'm like, something's up here. I noticed this. So he says that uh, he recognized Kodos' voice. And I was thinking that, you know, like... there was, I mean, again, I didn't know what happened to his face yet at this point, right? We 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 don't know. They never really talk about what happened to his face. But I was thinking, like, if some guy had been like torturing you in some way, or if some guy had been, you know, responsible for mangling your face, you probably would have a really good idea. That voice would probably haunt you nightly. Kirk says he knows him too, knows him too, but uh, there's not enough evidence. And now his ship's late. And he's got some other things to do. And I'm not going to stay for this crazy cocktail party to meet with Kodos and the actors. That's not going to happen. So now, of course, we start setting up the questions. Is Tom going to die here? It feels like Tom's about to die. Uh, Will will Kirk come back to the planet? You know, what's going to happen here? So we cut to Kirk on the Enterprise in the briefing room. Uh, At First, he doesn't know, like... At first, he looks like he doesn't know what he's like wants to do. You know, he's just kind of like putzing around on the internet or something. You know, it's hard to tell. Uh, <laughs> but then we hear him ask for uh info, or from uh we have him ask uh, Miguel Barrett actually for info on Kodos, right? And so then there, like the computer when it's working has that like tick 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 sound effects.
0: Yeah, like like. Like there's a mechanical thing. I know, exactly.
1: I mean again for the sixties it totally works, but now your days you're like, if your computer is making that noise, you need to get your hard drive checked. (laughs) That is just not good. The fan is stuck, something is very wrong. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, you know, I think I think part of it is that they're imagining data tapes. Right. So they're imagining some rack of tapes in which it's like "Read read this tape, 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 and you know that's that's how it knows so much it's it's reading all these tapes yeah well that you know they 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 called them tapes in
1: other episodes too you know the data tapes or whatever yeah
0: and so i think they're thinking it's magnetic tape
1: yeah must be
0: and we're 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 hearing that ma- magnetic tape machine going from reel to reel to reel or spool to spool to spool i think that's what we're supposed to be hearing but of course i hear it and i'm like you know, we are so far beyond that. I mean, you know, you know, the way our flash drives work. Right. Which is way better than the way our hard drives work. You know, if you spend a little extra money, you can get a hard drive that basically works like your flash drive. It's very fast. Yeah. And here they well, it's are also funnier- in the 21st also- century.
1: Uh I I was just going to say. I also thought that I also always think of of flash drives as like isolinear chips, you know, that they have in next generation. It's just like just plug them in. Here is memory. Here we go. Got to get the information in the right order. Let's do this.
0: And uh, so there is that. There is the their computer appears to be working on the most ancient form of of storage ever that ever existed in terms of. computers because I, I remember you know having friends who had like a trs-80 that had a you know like a, a cassette deck for tapes and like the software was in there and they'd run the machine and you know they'd it'd yeah. read the tape quickly and then you'd play the game that was on it
1: right even or well, you got to remember the old uh commodore vic 20 remember the vic 20 had that data tape thing we Did saved games on
0: okay so yeah i guess we just have one of those too. Why I would remember somebody else had it and I didn't—I don't know.
1: Well, whoever played with the VIC 20, we got rid of that as soon as the 64 came in. We're like much better machine.
0: Actually, I, I now that I, now that you bring it up, I do remember like dabbling in programming on the on the VIC 20. I'm sure I spent like three whole days trying to be a programmer. And uh, so you got that, but you've also got—you know—today we live in a world of facial recognition software, in which you walk through a mall and they know who you are. You know, Britain is full of these these cameras. And there's a lot of these cameras in the United States in which if you're if you're a bad dude who's on the, you know, some kind of thing and you get cross-referenced, they're going to find you. And so here's a guy like Kodos and they can't run facial recognition software on this guy, right? And the the beauty i know right yeah They had no the, idea
1: what that was in the 60s the,
0: the best thing they had was the voice analysis which which yep, either did exactly. exist or was you know something that was Let's, right around the corner or something that could be done by people right. and that you would imagine computers would do in the future because obviously you can listen to two recordings and go hmm the grammar the syntax the the timbre yeah in the same way that like back then they would have had handwriting analysis right they, they just didn't bother to like get codes right. to write anything down so they could be like aha look at the way he forms his ease but you know watching this while being aware that there's facial recognition software today <laughs> and they spend so much and facial recognition software basically looks at the structure of your skull you can't conceal it how far apart are your eyes which is the distance from your eyes to your nose, to your mouth, to your chin. You know, these kinds of points, it's your skull. You can't really conceal it. You can do things to obscure it. You can wear sunglasses. You could put putty on your face. But, I mean, you can't move where your eyes are on your face. So... True. You know, in that sense, the, the, the lack of facial recognition software made the... The plot go a lot longer than it, it seemed like it ought to him.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Because he just, like, stares at the photos, and he's like, it could yeah. be
0: the same guy.
1: <laughs> I'm <am> not sure. <laughs> so, eventually, uh, Kirk discovers a possible connection to Kodos, as the actor did not exist 20 years ago. Dun, dun, dun. And he also has a daughter, age 19.
0: He, he's doing some good police work. Yes.
1: So, uh, Spock enters. Kirk uh, asks Spock about you know Dr. Tom down on the planet. Kirk asks Spock about the doctor that you know he's like Spock calls him empirical with flashes of yeah. brilliance. I thought yeah. this is very high praise coming from a Vulcan, <laughs> but then Kirk's also says, uh with a long memory, and Spock says, "Well, yeah. I have no information on that front. <laughs> I don't know anything, so it's this kind of a it's this kind of dialogue, and some of which we'll see later too. That Gene Kuhn was really good about writing, you know? He was good about uh, writing, you know, that fun kind of teasing that they have together. But this is also the kind of stuff that Roddenberry hated. You know what I mean? He wanted this to be... Oh, really? Yeah. He wanted this to be a very, like, serious... Especially, you know, on the subject that they were discussing in this episode, you know? He wanted this to be very uh, serious and that this was handled, like, very militarily, you know? Which I think is why later we get a very like bipolar kirk. <laughs> you know, in yeah. the scene where they're like joking around, one second and he's like, "Hey, did I tell you to, you know, question my authority? No, I didn't." Okay. We were joking around here. Who, Who is the captain here? here? We were joking around 5 seconds ago, but now oh, no, we're not allowed. So, I think that's part of the reason that that happens. That's only a guess on my part. That wasn't didn't come up in my research.
0: But the I I also feel like in those scenes uh Kirk is feeling vulnerable because he knows he's doing something. He's really, he's he's out of his element. He's not doing, you know, he's, he's held the ship over in a way that he shouldn't have. He took it out. You know, he's got diverted, tricked by a friend to, you know, then he's picked up this troop of actors. He's acting inappropriately. And I think he gets defensive because of it. So Kirk decides to be
1: back down and go to the party after all, after all, and man that first scene of like kirk walking through the party it's like he belongs there you know that was so funny yeah
0: it's, did you notice that they that's a jazz version of I the did. star that Trek was my theme. next
1: note yeah
0: <laughs> i said did you notice the music here question
1: mark it's like a swinging jazzy Hepcat version of the theme yeah it's so crazy love that
0: I mean, you know, know, to to find out that Sammy Davis Jr. is at this party wouldn't have been surprising.
1: Exactly. So then Kirk uh, turns and looks and sees a lovely blonde walk through the front door. He smiles at her and introduces himself. I even wrote, again, I didn't know anything about this episode. I go, this has got to be Codis' daughter, right? Because who else is this going to be? Um, They sit down and start talking. She calls her father Macbeth. With that, which I thought was interesting. Kirk is, like, utterly charming here as he pulls Lenore away from the party, you know? He's like, hey, would you like to go somewhere else? A little more quiet, blah, 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 and off they go. You called this earlier the, like, the bond moment. Lenore feels that Kirk is a very different person when it's just the two of them. He doesn't have to play the strong captain facade that he puts on in front of people.
0: And, of course, this is where, where she is seducing him. Right. Right. And you can tell that she knows his weaknesses. She sized him up. You're lonely. You've got to put on a facade for other people. Um, I'm going to say nice things about you in exactly the right way that's going to suck you in. Right. I'm going to say you're different. You're, you're actually a, a warm person. You're not that brash person. The real you is a good person. That other thing you do is you is for your job.
1: It's like the it's the exact opposite of uh, Vina from uh, from uh, the cage. You know where you had said in that episode that like she you know hadn't had a lifetime of manipulating men and you know didn't exactly know how to go about it.
0: Yeah, she didn't do it terribly well. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna get a little actory here in this thing, being an actor myself, (laughs) because it's interesting to me. Because you, as you watch Shatner's performance, for the most part, like 99% of the time, you're like, this is so Captain Kirk. This guy is awesome, right? But there are these little other moments, there these little like ends of scenes, or, these, uh, or sometimes it's when the shot is on the other person and all you see is his back. Where sometimes you can see Shatner doing something that's a little less Kirk-like. You know, that was maybe is a little more Shatnery or something. So, it's funny because I always remember Nicholas Meyer, who directed, you know, Rathacon and The Undiscovered Country, always saying about Shatner that he always used later takes of him when Shatner was a little more tired and bored because he felt like actor wasn't right. like... Or that Shatner wasn't trying as hard, you know, that he was being... Which, of course, is like what everybody says about acting for the camera, right? You know, less is more. So, that's just the best thing. So... Did I
0: ever, there's a story, I can't remember who it is now. It is a, uh, it's a senator, and he's, he's famous for being a debater and a talker, and I can't remember who it is, but they, his, his campaign director, in order to get a really good campaign commercial out of him, like, make sure to schedule him for, like, two days straight. You know, like, 20-hour days, two days in a row. And then he had this commercial he had to do. So he'd been, like, on the plane, you know, flying Washington. To, let's say it's it's Orrin Hatch. And he's, oh, you know, Utah, Washington, back to Utah. You know, meeting with crowds, meeting with, you know, donors, meeting with, uh, you know, whatever. And then then they go to the studio and they record this thing, you know, where he's like laying down and he's just talking about his childhood and like, you know, what things mean to him. And it was so good. And it's because they had to like exhaust him because because otherwise he would have been, you know, the politician who was on. Right. Yeah. So you can imagine like wearing a guy out for two days to get him to talk about being, a, yeah. you know, like what motherhood means or like what the state of Utah means or. So it's the same with Shatner.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny too. So again, there are these little moments when, so I sometimes wonder because we hear a lot too, like, or have heard things behind the scenes of, you know, people of Shatner getting angry when people tell him like how Kirk is supposed to be. And he's like, I think I know Mm -hmm. what Kirk is supposed to be. And sometimes I, sometimes I wonder if an actor truly can, you know, especially in a medium like movies and TV where there are multiple takes And sometimes in one way you do it, you know. In one take you go, and the next take you do it. You know, it's like depending on which one they used, you have no real take on which way Kirk, you know, uh, which way the character would be played. You know, and so anyway, whatever. I like I said, ninety-nine percent of the time you get amazing, awesome William Shatner Kirk. But then there are from time to time you just see these little moments where you're like, oh, that's not. I don't know if that's the same, but. Whatever.
0: We also get, you know, scenes like like that where we're seeing cap, uh, the captain out of his element. True. And, That's true. And you're wondering, you know, to what extent is this is Kirk awkward because he's he is a lonely guy with this pretty girl, and uh, you know, he's he's not going to be himself. Yeah. We're going to see, in a sense, lower functioning. You know, kind of getting a chance to drive the bus a little bit also too as we continue to discuss how our father is
1: a lot like William Shatner there is a I can't describe it other than saying it's like a pause and a smile that that Mm -hmm. Shatner does that I don't know if dad does just instinctually or if he like learned to do it from watching Shatner but there is a pause and a smile that Shatner does that reminds me of dad every time Anyway, back to the show. So he's, uh, he's about to kiss Lenore here at this moment when over her shoulder he sees a, a dead body lying by some rocks. So uh, he runs over there, and he finds out it's his buddy Tom lying there, dead. And then something very strange happens because we crossfade to Tom's home where they have apparently brought back the body and laid it out on the couch. I mean, like, Starfleet CSI would be so pissed about that. Wait a minute, you move the body? <laughs> why would you do that? How are we going to get any evidence off of him now? Of course. So now we have well, all the questions that are starting to open up, right? So why was yeah. Tom killed? You know, uh, Kirk vows to find out why. Uh, we've sort of left to the true heart of what this story is. Is this guy Kodos? Did he kill
0: Tom? You know, and where will the story take us? So That's what they should have done. They, they should have shot you know, a half a day's worth of scene in which it basically was Star Trek CSI, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. McCoy's down there with a, a medical team. They're doing an autopsy. Spock is leading a forensic examination and stuff. And then they just cut, like, 90 seconds out of all of that to give you the sense that, like, this whole... Like a montage. Yeah. That there had been this very scientific investigation, you know, for all this data. And then and then we move ahead with the...
1: Park. Yeah, and then we put them on the couch and have our... I mean, even if... I don't know. Whatever. If it was done today, it would obviously have been done differently. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Kirk calls in a favor with the captain of the other ship, the Antares or whatever, to miss their pickup of the traveling band of actors so that Kirk can then do it himself. Kirk brings back to the ship. And then and then this is where that, that little, like... Fun talk happens between Spock and they're just he's kind of giving him like, Oh, I don't know, we might have a pickup coming soon. Let's see what happens. Yeah. So then all of a sudden they get a they get he gets a note that Lenore has beamed aboard the ship. Like, anybody can just beam aboard the ship, that's gonna be fine. Did he leave standing orders saying, Hey, let's go ahead and let if anybody calls from the traveling troop, we're gonna let them beam up. I don't know what happened there, but with all the other protocols we've seen in other shows, I don't know exactly how this happened. And then I have to ask, what the hell is she wearing? <laughs> it's like this. It's like a mink dress, yeah. But it's like off the shoulder and like but yeah, the actress. Said, lots of back. Yeah, exactly. The actress said that she couldn't even sit down in it because she was too embarrassed to. It was some sort of like fox minky pullover with shiny leggings. I don't know what that was.
0: It, it was. It was her. Get the captain to take you to your next destination. Dress.
1: Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Let's seduce the captain. So Lenora is escorted to the bridge? Yeah, cuz the the point that I see here is that she is clearly seducing him. Right? So we we know from the end that she knows who he is the moment she sees him. Right. And so her behavior can only be explained by the fact that she's trying to seduce him. We know what her reasons are, you know, by the end of the story. And so we know what her motivation is. She wants to get on board his ship and, and then, then we have to figure out what are his mo- – why is he doing this? Right. Well, he, he wants to solve the, the mystery. He wants to get information from her about her father.
1: Well, it's and interesting. Then- I mean it's interesting too because it does play the other way. You know, you can see Lenore is just this like charming person who instantly is attracted to. I mean, again, you're totally right. We once we see her motivations at the end, everything that all changes. But watching it through the first time, it totally plays the other way as well.
0: Right. And so, you know, I I don't know what he thinks he's going to be doing. I think in the beginning, he just wants information. He starts asking your questions about so when do you. When did this happen? When did your father start being a you know a great? When do you remember that he's looking for that early uh, some early information, right? Mm-hmm. And she won't give it, and then she starts you know her seduction, right? Right. And I think he, in a sense, just goes with it. Oh, you know, if this is how this is going to play out, I'm going to go along because I want information. I want to find out who your father really is, and so forth. And then we have this question, you know, later on about is he being the cynical information gatherer the whole time the way, you know, James Bond frequently would be? Right. Or does he fall for the girl because, in fact, he is the lonely starship captain and she's the pretty actress who has successfully manipulated him? And then how does he feel about that? Is he like, hey, you know, red-blooded American? Or is he like... Oh, she totally had me and I was, I was had, I mean, we're lucky that I wasn't also killed out in the field or. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, like Tom was there. I mean, this could have gone wrong so many ways because, uh, you know, she was really ahead of me in terms of the manipulation for most of, of the episode. Right. And I'm frankly embarrassed by it because I was out of my depth. So, uh, so Spock asks
1: Kirk, uh, well, how did you know this lady was coming aboard? <laughs> and Kirk's answer, I'm the captain. <laughs> it's like in Holy Grail, you know, And they're like, well, how'd you know that? Well, you have to know these things when you're a king. <laughs> I, try to, I try to use that whenever possible. You know, whenever anybody asks me like some random trivia question that I happen to know the answer to when I'm behind the bar, people are like, how do you know that? And you're like, I'm a bartender. I have to know these things. <laughs> it's always my answer anyway so Lenore and Kirk are pretty smiley and charming over this as uh, Kirk agrees that he will take them aboard in exchange for performance for his crew that have been long on patrol as Lenore leaves the bridge we see Rand make her last cameo appearance yeah and she scowls at, at, at she scowls at Lenore almost you know like mm-hmm. happens to notice her and blah blah, blah. it's kind of hard to tell her reaction there but it always
0: seemed like a scowl so yeah like like who And you've got to figure as as Yeoman Rand, you know, you get off the elevator, you see this pretty girl in this this fur thing getting off, and you're like, well, she's here to see the captain. I mean, women like this do not come up to see Mr. Spock, (laughs) or, you know, like, talk to the crewmen who are around the perimeter of the bridge. (laughs) Well, she knows exactly what's going on here. Yeah,
1: exactly. Especially, yeah. Especially somebody who's not a member of the crew. What are they doing? What is she doing here? Uh, So let's talk about Rand here really quick. A little more behind-the-scenes stuff happening. This is uh, Rand's last episode. Uh, She was... There are a lot of stories that have gone around. Uh, Some of the memos that flew around at this point are very uh, conflicting. You know, some of them will say something like, well, Rand costs a lot of money and... uh, you know, they we we think we should probably uh, you know get rid of. And people. I do.
0: And then there are other memos that say. I do think at this moment, ahead. that's a believable uh, thread. That that's a thing that's going on, right? right? There is a lot of anxiety about how much the show costs, and the idea that. But then there that there wants to be some cost. Then there are cutting. other. Uh-huh.
1: Then there are other memos that say you know. Um, well, if she, her contract is up. Right. So if we just have her come back, you know, from time to time in episodes, we can just pay her the guest, you know, like the, you know, the, the lower rate. Right. So she won't even be making as much money. However, Grace Lee Whitney wrote in her autobiography that uh, she had one night gone to a party, uh, slept with an executive at NBC, and then that was the end of her career. So there's two sides of the story, it's hard to say which one's
0: real. Um, she did. Then uh, we've got the the other argument, which I think we've mentioned before, was that you know writers felt like she was getting in the way of Captain Kirk having the exact kind true. of you know romances that we're seeing on this in this episode, right? But that's almost I mean. I guess that's true, too.
1: But, you know, you leave her off for, you know, five, six episodes and then bring her back as a regular crew member who no longer fancies the captain or something. I mean, that's something that you could easily turn or even just do a story on it where, like, this is it. This is never going to happen. Let's move on. Right. I mean, there's lots of ways they could have handled that if that was the issue as well. Anyway, things didn't work out very well for Grace Lee Whitney. In the 70s, she uh, tried to uh, she she wrote a song called Disco Trekkin. That did not do so great for her. Uh, in the 80s, she finally came out saying that she had had uh, not only alcohol addiction, but also had a sex addiction, Addiction, so that didn't really help her life either. Uh, but then, you know, in the 80s, came back and was in uh, almost every single one of the uh, of the movies, the Star Trek movies. Yes, and plus, you know, did a couple of uh, Voyager episodes and uh, and such, so... Sad story for Rand, but you know, at least it all kind of has a happy ending towards the end of her career. Yeah, by
0: the know. by the time of those Voyager episodes, we find out that like she is uh, basically second in command of Sulu ship. Yeah, she's got the rank exactly. of you know full commander, and she is. While well, while well, no one ever explains the uh, you know the chain of command on the Excelsior or, or what is the name of Sulu ship. What was Excelsior? Like, okay oh well
1: it might not be in voyager but it was in six
0: yeah well then it's excelsior okay so yeah so the relationship where sulu talks to rand in a particular way and then rand gets things done where she's got the rank of commander you're like well there's there's really no one else here who could be the second command she is totally filling that spot right so i think it's plausible to reason that she is in fact the number one on the excelsior
1: Kirk gives Spock the order and set a set a new course. Spock says, "Well, that's eight light years out of our way." Kirk comes back with a very terse, "If my memory needs refreshing, Mister Spock, I'll ask you for it. In the meantime, follow my orders." So uh, I know Kirk doesn't want to show his hand yet, but I have a feeling like if this was ten years down the line, Spock would have you know become privy to all of Kirk's oh, yeah. little schemes, you know. But it's-
0: well, one of two things would happen. One. Spock uh, would just go, Captain's got something going on. Captain knows what he's doing. Going to back to captain's play. Right. Or, yeah, you know, he would have brought Spock into the thing and, and Spock would just know. Either way, it wouldn't be a problem.
1: So, stardate 818.9. Kirk asks Spock for an ETA on Benicia Colony. Spock says they would arrive on 2825.3.
0: So that gives Kirk seven days to unravel the mystery. 1,500 Benicia time. Because apparently the whole planet has a single time zone. Apparently. We'll be there at 3 o'clock Benicia time.
1: (laughs) So then we see Kirk move to Spock Station. Kirk sits at Spock Station and discovers that good old Tom Riley, whose shenanigans we saw during the naked time, was also one of the few people who is still alive who had seen Kodos at the time of all the bad stuff. So Kirk, uh, without even giving a reason, demotes Riley back down to engineering. I suspect... Oh, he just moves him. Right. I suspect that this is because he's like, well, engineering, he'll be out of the way of everybody, and in communications, anything could happen. He could be anywhere.
0: Yeah. Like, where is communication? I mean... Good question. So they do this. They have this move. And I feel like the point of the move is just to like bring up his name. Right. And, and basically there, it translates almost to, well, of course, uh, hide Kevin Riley in a broom closet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, he, he doesn't want to be in a broom closet. <laughs> Nobody does, but he needs to be in a broom closet. Because you just like, like not like communications in some place out in the open where, you know, like, oh, you know, just, you bring people on the ship, they wander through communications. Yeah, apparently. He's totally vulnerable. But if you put him in engineering, no one will ever see him again. No one again. Goes engineering.
1: So, um, and it's funny because it doesn't even end up working. <laughs> like, somebody eventually finds him down there.
0: It could have been an accident. You know, That's that, true. that poison is a milky fluid.
1: All right, thanks, McCoy. Um... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So of course Spock tries to discover the motive, and uh, and Kirk follows that with another terse "Follow my orders." So uh, in sickbay, Spock has gone down to ask McCoy uh, his advice about the captain. McCoy starts with, "The chain of command is often a noose." <laughs> Love that. Uh, McCoy thought he was going to have a moment alone to drink, so he's <laughs> like, I "Guess not." Spock's here. I'm going to offer Spock one. And it's funny because he offers him true, which is uh, the same the same drink that's at the end of the carbomite maneuver. So I thought that was a little nice little detail to bring back. Yeah. Spock's response to the offer of a drink is, my father's race was spared the dubious effects of alcohol. Oh, no, the dubious benefits of alcohol. Yeah. Love that. <clears throat> anyway, I'd love to go on quoting this scene all day because it's amazingly written. I really love
0: it. But it is know. a really good scene. Yes. And... It gives us a lot of this uh, Kirk-Spock-McCoy triangle, focusing here on the Spock-McCoy part of it. But, you know, there's always a question when these two guys are fighting. Are they fighting with each other? Are they fighting about Kirk? You know, you're not always clear how much of the troubled dynamic of Spock versus McCoy is just spock versus mccoy i mean for one hand they're both scientists right they're both using a a scientific approach to solving their problems although uh, you know spock will frequently criticize mccoy's apparent use of intuition and if we were to you know bring out the myers-briggs we'd see that mccoy should have a, a working third function of intuition where spock as very likely an istj should have his intuition all the way at the bottom of his stack, doesn't like it, wants to be very empirical, right. very uh, concretely data-driven, whereas McCoy would have this, this and, and Kirk as well, would have this third-functioning, powerful uh, assist to their two dominant functions, their intuition. And, of course, McCoy should be using FE as his judging function, extroverted feeling, is he's, he's aware of people? People aren't right. Something's going on with people. I sense there's a thing going on with people over here. And Spock should be a TE user. And should be, you know, basically, you know, give me the data, give me some analysis. You know, I'm judging people as impersonal objects that are interacting. And so they can look at each other and go, "You're doing it the wrong way. Well, you know, you're, you're. It's annoying the way you're problem solving here. Cut it out. Do it my way." and you've got this question of you know captain kirk in here right right and so they're in a sense both in their own way trying to protect the captain look out for the captain make sure that the captain's safe so spock is worried that he's acting differently is the captain okay you know do we need to intervene here to protect the captain And, you know, McCoy at this point is basically leave the captain alone. The captain's okay. The captain knows what he's doing. Let's protect the captain basically by leaving him be. Right. And then later on in the second scene where we get this dynamic going on, basically McCoy flips when he realizes that Spock is in fact protecting you. You need to let Spock help you, both in the one sense that he's protecting the ship. He's doing his job. He's looking out for, you know, if, if you're, you know engaging in some questionable behavior if you're putting the ship in jeopardy at the very least we need to know about it you can't you know run this entire operation you know in your own head you know so you I I think it really develops you know some of this Spock McCoy stuff going on yeah it's, it's good stuff it's a great scene
1: illogical did you see that little Juliet <laughs> sorry <laughs> keep quoting that scene um so we go to the uh we go to the observation deck, which is the one and only time we've seen this uh we see this on the uh, Enterprise.
0: It also establishes that the ship has shuttlecraft.
1: That's right, exactly. They mentioned the shuttlecraft here above the flight deck. We also get our, our, our we also get that there is somehow some daily cycle that happens with lights that we don't always see, but it is mentioned in this scene, which I thought is kinda of fun. Uh, we definitely see that a lot more in next generation. I think you know, yeah. I think especially in some of the later seasons when like Troy's taking the night shift on the on the you know, on the bridge and whatnot. The bridge, yeah. <laughs> so uh, two things, uh, two things more about this scene. Uh, number one, she uses the words "surging" and "throbbing." <laughs> in Yeah. The
0: scene. I'm like, whoa. Well, that's pretty heavy for uh, 60s
1: television.
0: Especially because she clearly means it as a double entendre yep you know this is she's not you know especially with the next generation engine you could look at that thing and going wow you know that antimatter is really you know surging and throbbing and you're like "Mm, kind of it is i mean that's it does have a pulsating nature to it right those are apt descriptions of the antimatter reaction but here in this context uh, i think i think this is as much about Captain Kirk <laughs> it's
1: about else. Yeah, no kidding. Well, so there was also in this scene was written, uh, Rand was supposed to walk in right at that moment.
0: Oh. She was supposed
1: to, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. She was supposed to walk in at this moment and then be like, okay. And Kirk was supposed to sign something. And then the scene goes on with her asking about the women on the ship uh, as is written. But what had happened is at this point they were running over so they just the director the director sided without really consulting anybody else like hey what if we just i'm just going to cut this scene it's not really necessary and we'll just tag it together with these two things and we'll move on so grace lee whitney was there the two days that they were filming that scene and then never got to go on because they were just running behind so much so sad for her there just another like insult to injury there
0: it's also a metaphor for what's going to happen to her as a character <laughs>
1: yes exactly <laughs> I also like it in this scene because it comes back later, so it's nice. Uh, She calls Kirk Caesar of the Stars. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And then it's funny, as I noticed as I was typing all of this out, that I haven't said much about the scenes between Lenore and Kirk. You know? I mean, they're fine, but I just don't know if there's much to say about them other than like Kirk is way charming and she smiles a lot, you know, and is charming as well. I don't know. Anything else you think I'm missing? I think you've already discussed that, these scenes a little bit yeah, earlier. They're, but
0: They're attempting to seduce each other because yes. they have goals beyond actually having a romance with each other. They want right. to murder the one or imprison the other. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and then at the
1: end of the scene, they kiss. So there's that. Uh, meanwhile, Spock does some digging to find out what uh, is common among Kirk, Tom, Riley, and...
0: Uh, Kodos?
1: And Kodos, yes. And then in a scene later, and then the next scene, McCoy lays out sort of the history for us, that there was a virus that killed most of the food. 8,000 people were going to die. Kodos took over. Kodos decided who lived, who died. Spock calls it his own theory of eugenics. We also find out that besides Riley and Kirk, all the other people who have witnessed the massacre are dead.
0: Which, again, is a uh, we're hunting Nazis reference, right? Exactly. So it's perfectly fine just to have the story be about a guy who had to make a tough call right we thought the food was running out we thought we were all going to die you know so he picked arbitrarily who lived and who died but then we have to we we do add this question of he he had it wasn't arbitrary he had a system there were certain people who he was going to select his own theory of eugenics
1: and on top of that, not only are they all dead, but the Caridian players were there every time somebody died. No dramatic chords there, but we do cut to Riley in engineering. He buses up to the rec room because he's bored and uh, asks her to sing him a song. And uh, as she does, somebody sneaks up on him and sprays something into the milk.
0: In a spray bottle that looks so mid-20th century. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> uh, he drinks the milk as the song ends, and Riley chokes on it to dramatic chords. Dun-dun-dun! In sickbay, Mc-
0: help me! Yeah, fortunately, he had, he had tapped himself into some other people here. Yeah, thank goodness. So as he, he cries out, they're all like, whoa! We better get going. Riley's in trouble.
1: Or he really didn't like a Hurra song. I don't know which one. Uh, in sickbay, McCoy is unsure whether or not he will survive. And Spock is worried that Kodos now will only have oh, one person left to go after.
0: We get to see some singing from Ahura. I mean, she sings a whole song. Yep.
1: Another song. They
0: gave her some, uh, some quality, you know, show off your musical chops time here.
1: Uh, Rand was actually supposed to be in the background there in, the, <laughs> in one of those scenes, too. But the day before she was supposed to show up, they called her and was like, hey, we're probably not going to need you tomorrow. She really did get the boot in, like, the worst way. So uh, now Spock is worried that Kirk's going to be the only one left and that he's going to die as well. Cut to commercial. Dun dun dun. We come back. A day has passed. Stardate now two eight one nine point one. The name of the chemical found in the milk was tetralubasol. <laughs> how can we make how can we make normal grease sound all like technoe? Hmm. Well, let's just add... Let's put the number
0: five in front of it. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) Tetralubosal. That sounds
0: good. (laughs) And then we'll give it a brand name anyway. Yes, exactly. Uh,
1: Traces of that were found in Riley's system. Spock is already sure that someone has tried to poison him. Spock demands that they bring it to the captain. Bones isn't having it, but Spock demands it! Back to our triangle again. Here we go. Spock tells of how he looked into the computer library to tell... uh, Library, same as Kirk. Aren't you overstepping your bounds there, looking into my personal business? Spock, as we've seen before in previous episodes, doing his duty, protecting the crew and the ship. If your personal business interferes with the smooth running of our ship. And Kirk just, like, comes at him. I don't want anyone meddling in my affairs, even if you are my second in command. And Bones comes in with his practical reasoning, right? It's his job, and you know it. Kirk calms down. All right, I don't have proof.
0: But Spock agrees with him. Well, and he's he, he's also got the Oh, wait a minute. You know, this the triangle is is aligned against me. Right. That's when
1: he knows he's in trouble.
0: Yeah, I've somehow brought uh, Spock and McCoy in reliance, you know, on this question. <laughs> Clearly I'm I'm, you know, the
1: wrong side of the isosceles triangle or not isosceles, That's right. I, what's the
0: I need to get it back where at least
1: one of yous on my side. Right, exactly. <laughs> what's the what's the triangle with the right angle? Ah, never mind. Anyway, millions of people are now yeah, yelling think, at the I podcast. He... Is that? Is, I thought a side, I thought <laughs> isosceles was an the one equilateral. with the three equal sides. Yeah, equilateral.
0: Oh, that's an equilateral triangle. Oh, so I was right. Isosceles. Yeah.
1: Heck yeah, I was. But
0: that, that has two two of the same size.
1: Oh, whatever. Anyway, so um, Kirk, or, so Spock agrees with them. He says that it all adds up. Kirk is calling for justice. Papone says, "Are you sure?" Are you sure it's not vengeance? Kirk isn't sure. He's done things. He's done things he's never done before. He's put the ship in danger. He's gone out of his, you know, way of the captain. He's he, isn't, he still isn't even sure if it's Kodos. He says, but Spock is, and yet Kirk still isn't quite convinced.
0: Kirk has got like this crazy high level of, of uh, you know justice, right? Yeah. In which he he wants the smoking gun. The fact that he has found a fish in the percolator is in no way circumstantial evidence that someone has put a fish in the percolator. He, he needs proof. He needs to find out. Well, then he you know, says... He needs a confession.
1: He says, logic isn't enough. I have to feel my way through. Mm-hmm. How's your Meyer Briggs feeling now, huh?
0: He's
1: got to feel his way through.
0: Yeah. This I mean, it seems it seems like they like he's so there's two ways to approach this. Right. One is this is a poorly written line. Kirk shouldn't be saying this. Mm-hmm. So, so often Kirk is the good scientist that he himself, like McCoy and Spock, is using the scientific method to solve problems. Right. So why would he be rejecting it here? Um, So this leads me, so one explanation is it's poorly written. He should not say it. The other is Spock has occupied that place in the argument. He's beaten him to that place. And so because Kirk insists on disagreeing, he's going to say, well, we can't use that method because it's coming to conclusions that I don't want to reach. So he's just groping for something else. And that will be, I have to, like, and it's ridiculous. I have to feel my way through it. That's how you solve crimes. Up until this point, he's been so rigorous and thorough, right? He's, in a sense, looking for a higher standard of evidence, not a lower standard of evidence. He's not wanting to feel his way through it. He's wanting to, like, lock it down in a way that, that in a sense, mere logic. His, His real question is, your rationalism is insufficient. I need empiricism here which is really what Kirk is doing, right? I need hard evidence. You know, the fact that logically this makes sense isn't sufficient. I need to rule out all all the other possibilities. I need to, you know, prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt, not beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what it seems to me Kirk is really doing. So I think, you know, if we're going to accept the line as a legitimate line, it has to be because Kirk has has found himself like having to disagree with Spock and and Spock's method. And then, he, well, and
1: not only that, too, even later, you know, he they they have, when they do the voice recording, mm-hmm. you know, even he says, it's not a perfect match, so I still can't. Right. I, I can't leave. What does he say? He basically says something like I can't leave, you know, a man's life on a technical detail or something. Yeah, he's, like that.
0: he's not feeling his way through it. He's he's using a higher standard than logic. He wants some physical proof.
1: So then uh, Bone says, well, what if we find out, of course, that it is Kodos? What happens then? And Kirk says, well, I hope the dead will rest easier.
0: Yeah, so in a sense, he sounds like he's willing to, you know, do horrible things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so then we cut to another scene with Spock and Kirk. in the. Th- and I thought it was a weird cut. I even wrote, like, well, this is a weird cut. <laughs> later, but although we're not sure how much later, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's because there was going to be a scene... Where Kodos was like walking through the corridors of the ship, and he was hearing the voices in his head of the people who he had massacred, but they didn't get- they didn't have time to film it, so that scene obviously then got cut. I'm almost glad they didn't in fact, I like the way that it all ends up, where we're we are even unsure up until that scene between Kirk and Kodos because then it comes pretty obvious you know that. We're still pretty unsure whether or not he's right. We don't even know.
0: Yeah, we're not. I mean, I I think they had some nice pictures of the same actor earlier on.
1: (laughs) True, very true.
0: But uh, you don't know. So, uh,
1: again, later, not sure how much Spock and Kirk uh, continue talking. And all of a sudden they hear a hum. And the hum's getting louder. It's a phaser on overload, like back on Vega in the cage. uh, Spock starts searching for it. Kirk calls for... A double red alert.
0: <laughs> it's a double red alert.
1: <laughs> it's a double red alert. It's just not one. No, this is we're in serious trouble now. So Kirk sends Spock out, like clear the decks. We got to get everybody out of here. And then, so then Kirk starts searching for it. He's throwing stuff everywhere. The noise is too much for him. But then he looks up, and it's 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 in his quarters. Somehow we don't know how that happened. But it, somehow this over, this phaser is in his. <laughs> in the red lamp learn And so then he takes it and he throws it out. The pressure unit disposal unit.
0: Well, at first he like, like adjusts it. Like he's going to turn it off.
1: Yeah. Like he's going to try and turn it and off. And maybe
0: yeah. if he'd heard it going, rr, 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 then he'd be like, Whew. but it, it doesn't. So he's like, Oh, it's, it's going to go. <laughs> I'll throw this in this thing and hope this isn't the
1: garbage chute. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily this is the pressure unit disposal for something.
0: Oh, uh- I don't even know what that thing is. I mean, why would you exactly. have such a thing?
1: <laughs> I, I, exactly. If I you know.
0: accidentally leave a phaser on low overload and then can't find it, throw it in here. <laughs> or, you know, if, you, if you've if got a bomb <laughs> or a torpedo that's going to go off, if someone pulls a pin on a grenade, just throw it in here. It'll be fine. Yeah. Why did you build It'll this? It'll
1: blow up somewhere deep in the bowels of the ship. I'm sure it's going to be totally safe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it explodes and the ship rocks. It's like an epilogue
0: where he's like, well, you know, 80% of the food stores were were destroyed. (laughs) Kirk threw that thing down there.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's a good thing we don't have 4,000 people on board.
0: (laughs) Captain, Captain's got to make some tough choices.
1: (laughs) We cut to Codis. He is, uh, in his quarters. Kirk enters and starts calling him Kodos. Are you Kodos? Kodos? Are you Kodos? And Kodos starts answering these questions super vaguely, right? I've mentioned this trope previously in another episode, and yet it still drives me crazy. You can't. <laughs> it feels like poor writing to me, too. Whenever like the bad guy starts giving vague answers. Because yeah. no one in real life would put up with that shit. You know what I right. mean? Like, he'd be like, no, you're going to tell me. You're going to quit talking around the issue. You know what I mean? You're going to say, yes, I'm Kodos. Co- well, I, I'm only Kodos if you think I'm Kodos. No, are you Kodos? <laughs> Just tell me the answer.
0: Yeah, this is. I'm done the, with this. The time that you see this in, like, real police dramas, that's where one of the cops grabs him by the collar and, like, bangs his head against the wall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the other cop's like, no, no, no. Exactly. Bob, no. <laughs> You're
1: not this way. It was, it was Vina in the cage. She was the other one who was like yeah. like he was asking her if she was real or not, and she wouldn't she wouldn't say like yes I'm real. She was just like, No, you should try and do these other things and become a part of this. And it's like, no, that's not the answer I'm looking for. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the only kind of frustrating thing. Otherwise, this scene is absolutely amazing. I love the the scene is
0: really incredible between these two. And you know, you could imagine uh so I mean in one sense he like gets the super philosophical and, and that has the function of establishing that this is a guy who's thought about these issues and wrestled with this stuff before and it helps later on when he does what he does at the end because you, you realize that he's done some of this philosophizing, that he hasn't just shut it off and like denied it and pretended it hasn't happened and right. But at the same time these vague answers it would you know this would be a much better scene to work this way if it were like at a dinner so in star trek 6 when they're talking about you know what is the future like and, and they they have this kind of go-round with uh uh general chang general chang, chang. yeah and you, you you know it works this way a little bit but it's you're at dinner you're in public you know no, right. nobody's Nobody's willing to like reach across the table and grab General Tang and bang his head against the table and go. But that's the answer I'm looking for, because everyone else is going. What the hell are you doing?
1: You've <laughs> not heard Shakespeare until you've heard it in the original Klingon.
0: Yeah, <laughs> whack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but this is this is a room with just two guys in it, and right. there's no audience that they're playing for. Although, in one sense, perhaps. I can't remember his actor name. (laughs) He's just Kodos.
1: I know, yeah. Uh, I I, I said Uh, it earlier. Yeah,
0: Caridian. Yeah, Caridian. Uh, I actually said Carillion, which is uh, (laughs) the wrong franchise. (laughs) Wrong franchise, sir. (laughs) Whoops. So, you know, Caridian, of course, does play to audiences. So, you know, perhaps that's all he does anymore.
1: So Kirk has Kodos read something into the communicator to test if it is really his voice or not. Kirk has written the same words that Kodos said 20 years ago. Kirk notices that uh, Kodos barely reads it.
0: And, and he doesn't conceal it either. I mean, he's just like... No, yeah, he's oh, reading it right at him. I'm supposed to say this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Here, I'll recite it.
1: Well, apparently, according to... A, a, <laughs> I was going to try and call him by his actor name. What is it again? Kodos Caridian? Yeah, it's his, Caridian. Yeah. So he's like, so Caridian says, uh, I learn my parts fast. Kodos then goes and monologues here a little bit about the great technical society and how they've, uh, that they've built and how it makes everybody less human. Then they debate the killing of 4,000 people to save 4,000 people. And then, so, so here very strangely,
0: so, you know, go Here ahead. we have one of the themes of Star Trek, right? Humanism. In which it is essential that we all preserve our humanity, that we live life to the fullest. That in a world of free energy produced by matter, antimatter, replicators and whatnot, we don't just basically sit around and play video games all day. That we are all striving to be better selves, better versions of ourselves. That we are continuing with the human endeavor of betterment rather than just becoming a uh, brave new world kind of existence and so interestingly we've got the villain in the story making the humanistic argument and kirk basically has to justify the values of the federation by saying no that's that's we that's what we got we got that thing sure we have tools yeah but that thing you're talking about that's what we're doing lots of good star trek will have characters that are forced to defend the values of the federation or articulate them but it's interesting that they have the villain as the guy who expresses them
1: so then kodos says something which is really interesting he says uh this kodos might have been considered a great man if the supply ships hadn't come earlier than expected what does that mean he's trying to justify his uh justify his choice like that's his case that's what he's going to that's what he's going to trial with huh well your your supply ship showed up way too early, and I mean jeez, I don't know when that was going to happen.
0: It hadn't occurred to us to like use any kind of subspace communications
1: <laughs> right to call anybody and get help
0: or like where are those you know where are those ships? You know if it was Kirk, he'd be like on the horn every couple of minutes, going, "Where are those supply ships and her would be like, it's the same thing as I told you two minutes ago." <laughs>
1: They're gonna fly the ship apart. Well, fly it apart.
0: <laughs>
1: so then, uh, then there's this great moment where, uh, where Caridian says If you believe me to be Kodos, then why not kill me now? Let vengeance take its final bloody curse. Again, if you're not Kodos, then why are you going to say this? You know what I mean. Yeah. Well, you're just some actor who's like, "Oh yeah, go ahead and kill me. It's fine."
0: And he's basically been saying, "Yeah, I'm Kodos, but I'm not going to say I'm Kodos." Yeah, that's, that's exactly. basically his line here.
1: Yeah, my next my next line is because he because he knows that Kirk knows, right. and we know that Kirk knows.
0: I mean, it's like that. You know, if, if this were more of a gangstery type movie, and he says he'd come in and he'd say, uh, "So are you Kodos?" And he's like what of it what if i add what's it to you yeah what are you gonna do about it copper
1: so kirk asked uh i can't remember his name caridian (laughs) (laughs) so ridiculous so kirk asked caridian you know uh who were you uh where were you 20 years ago who were you before then and and then i thought i loved the way the actor did this little monologue here about like you know blaming old age i am tired the pat the past is blank now there's just a, like this really well done scene. And then boom, as if to save the day, you know, in wa- Oh wait, oh wait, no, she doesn't come out yet. Oh, sorry. There's two more lines. <laughs> so then, uh, the past is blank. And there's a moment of tension in the room, right? And then he turns and he goes, did you get everything you wanted, Captain Kirk? And Kirk's like, if I got everything I wanted, you may not walk out of this cabin alive. And then he turns to go. But then Lenore comes out, and she says, in a very Shakespearean way, There's a stain on that shining mantle of honor, Captain.
0: A stain of cruelty.
1: Oh, is that what it was?
0: There's a stain of cruelty on your shining armor.
1: Love it. And then my next note is why is this piece so well written? It's so good. Like, especially that, like, we got that scene, which is so well written. All those Spock-McCoy scenes, which are, I mean, like, this whole episode is just like, why is it so good? It's so good. She says, you are like your ship, Captain, powerful and inhuman. You you show no mercy. So, now she's
0: taking the, uh, the, in a sense, the same argument as her father, right? Right. But she's trying to, like, out-position Captain Kirk as being, no, we represent humanity. You represent technology and the inhuman machine which of course is kind of silly
1: so after she says that you show no mercy i was like i said out loud i was like well he's not dead yet is he lucky but then kirk of course because he's got better writers says uh well if he is kodos then i have shown him more mercy than he deserves so great Now I'm trying to get all like my notes are like, <laughs> so rid- just ridiculously flowery. Now it says like, it uh, the script is finely written. It unfurls in a way that both pulls at your heart while simultaneously giving us a morality play. I'm like, <laughs> I must have really gotten into this this episode.
0: See, it but it's says true. Sh- it's a Shakespeare seed. Once it gets okay. planted, it yeah. just flowers and blooms all over. Right, even in your show notes. <clears throat>
1: But that's true. I mean, I think that the script is so great the way it weaves. You know, you're like buying into everything that's happening. You're enjoying, you know, you're watching the back and forth between everybody's having. And, you know, you've also got this morality play that's kind of happening between these characters. And it's just great. Whatever. Anyway, back in sickbay, Riley is confined to it. But he overhears Bones repeat who, uh, <laughs> who Anton so might it? be. That's right. The man who killed Riley's family. Dun, dun,
0: dun! commercial but of course you know in terms of motivation killing his family is certainly plenty of motivation but he also apparently <laughs> we find out later it's lenore but apparently he tried to kill you too yep you know for a lot of people trying to kill you is sufficient justification to get back at him
1: <laughs> that's right
0: but riley's got this so extra back- thing going on
1: so uh, back from commercial we find uh that the Caridian players have begun playing Hamlet, Kirk and Spock decide that the voice match is a close, is close but not exact. We're dealing with a man's life, says Kirk.
0: You know, it, it's odd because there are plenty of places, and this is one of them, in which it sounds like they're they're so wrapped up in like finding the absolute proof because they're going to take some kind of drastic action. You're like, aren't they just going to like contact? Space Command <laughs> or, or Space <laughs> right. Central or whoever they've been talking to recently <laughs> and say, it turns out we think Kodos is alive. We've got him on the ship. We're dropping him off at Starbase 12. Here's our evidence. Right. You know, have a trial. But instead, it's like they need to decide because they're going to throw him out of a, a airlock.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly.
0: And they got to know. But you know it would see, in the in the sense that this is a police drama, they only need to have the enough evidence to like you know go to a uh, a grand jury. They're not the executioner. There's a lot of steps in between the grand jury and the executioner. and I can see exactly. wanting to get as much evidence as you can before. You know, your guy gets to build a defense or make his argument or hide evidence or destroy evidence. I understand all that part of it, that they want to get as good cases they've got. But they really yeah. seem to be operating mentally as though they're going to throw him out of an airlock.
1: Bones realizes Riley is gone before saying, I'm never on time to uh, do a play. <laughs> uh, he calls Kirk immediately and his, uh, he calls Kirk immediately. Who is then immediately called by security to say that a weapons locker has been broken into? You know, it's funny that I know that they probably trusted Riley, like, hey, he's gonna follow orders. He's right. a you know Starfleet officer and blah blah blah. But where was the force field? I mean, seriously, why didn't they just <laughs> keep him in there? We saw it in well, where, no, where no man has gone before. Let's do it again. Both to
0: protect him and to like keep him in there. Yeah, exactly.
1: So Kirk heads to the theater he kind of sneaks around backstage but it was so like annoying to me as an actor myself to like see him just walk in front of the audience I'm like they can see you <laughs> come on hide there a little bit better what are you doing the
0: audience can see you
1: just drove me crazy but and, anyway
0: and, and, imagine yourself in the audience the captain is watching around backstage right exactly
1: you know, like if, it would be
0: so distracting if you see yeoman I mean, jones back there you're like well apparently they recruited yeoman jones to be some kind of stagehand and he's exactly. not very good at it but what's the captain doing back there exactly as soon
1: as the captain's back there you're like what is the captain doing <laughs>
0: Yeah, you There's got
1: to be something going on. You
0: can't pay attention anymore to the plot of the play. You're like, absolutely is captain backstage?
1: Exactly. That was my point. <laughs> anyway. Uh, he catches Riley backstage, kind of talks Riley out of it and sends him off to sick bay. And, and then Kodos. Like the audience goes, can't hear that either. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, but Kodos can because he comes off stage claiming that he heard voices from the past. And he says, the time has come for that pot to rise again. And for a second, you think that's it. He's going to like, as Kodos, he's going to kill somebody or he's going to submit to being Kodos. You think that's what's going to happen. But then the change happens. Only for a second, because Lenore lays it all out. She's the one who's been killing people in his name. More blood on my hands, he says. <laughs> she admits to killing them all. And Kirk has heard every word.
0: Yeah, I like how he's standing in this partial shadow. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. Well, you still have to see him. He's on TV. Kodos' heart is broken. You are the one thing that was untouched by what I had done, he says. And suddenly, Lenore, like, looks nuts. Like, she goes, boom, Looney Tunes, like, right, like, without stopping. And just all of a sudden, you're like, holy cow. Like, a switch went off. She says, uh, but I have saved you now. Kirk edges closer. And she says, but not... Uh, No one can save you, not you, Captain Kirk Not even Caesar Or something like that Not even Caesar
0: of the stars
1: (laughs) Right, exactly See, even he is awed by your presence Uh, The curtain rises The show must go on But Kirk calls for the guards The show's been over for 20 years, he says (laughs) She grabs the guard's gun Runs on stage Extra Looney Tunes as we get, like, close-up of her eyes that are just, like, wide as, like, dishes. They're just huge. Like, she, and she's talking gibberish about the Enterprise becoming and a floating tool in space. Yeah,
0: and they've put, like, you know, a light right in front of her face so that her eyes are shining this, you know, big, yes. shiny...
1: exactly. Kirk moves towards, and she threatens to fire the phaser at him, and then does, but Kodo Kodo's, lunges in front of it and takes the blast. He falls. She gives a Shakespearean monologue over her father's body. More Looney Tunes. This chick is crazy. Kirk attempts to pick her up off the floor. And I say attempts because, like, the phaser is right there. Like, she could have just grabbed it away from him again. I mean, like, as an actor, I would have been like, can I hand this off to somebody? Can I toss it to the red shirt over there or something? Like, why do I al- allow this gun to be this close to her? That's all I Yeah. And to the Enterprise Bridge. Kirk is melancholy. Bones says, yep, she's definitely Looney Tunes. She still believes that her father is alive, giving, giving performances to this day. But don't worry, she'll get the best care, he says. Bones asks if he truly cared for her. And Kirk replies by handing out a series of order. Uh, Spock, are we, uh, we good to go here? Cool. Uh, Uhura, the uh, channel's clear? Yeah, <laughs> right. Sulu set that course. Punch it! Got to, uh, Rev up the engines. Yeoman, you, uh, you got something for me to sign over here? Because who haven't I talked to? Hey, Crewman Leslie. Uh, yeah, why don't you go get me a fresco or something?
0: <laughs> we will see Crewman Leslie again. <laughs> That's
1: true. Uh, Bones says, so you're not going to my answer my question, are you?
0: Hey, uh, Spock, why don't
1: you play me something on that liar of yours or something? <laughs> <laughs> Anything he can do to not answer the question. But for Bones... That's enough. That's all the answer we need. Sweet music plays us into the credits. Dun, dun, dun.
0: So music has played an important part in this particular episode. Yeah, absolutely. Music is probably more important here than, than we've seen it, maybe in any, any other episode. We get the Star Trek theme being reapplied to, to different things. Uh, obviously, since it's 1966, you go to a cocktail party, you need some smooth jazz playing. Because that's just how it goes. Correct. There's no...
1: So why not the Alexander Courage theme? That'll be great.
0: Yeah. You know, n- nobody says, well, maybe we should make some uh, crazy, uh, you know, like Philip Glass music. Maybe that's what they listen to at parties in the 23rd century. Because Philip Glass would also be a 60s thing, right? It's just not what people right. do at parties. <laughs> listen to some Well, that would be really weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go to any party where Philip Glass is playing, that's all. I
0: So, uh, there's that they also play all this music during what should be a theatrical performance. You're like, "I don't think music normally goes in plays like this, <laughs> right? true, is this for our benefit, or is this happening in the world?
1: I don't know, so uh, the composer in this episode, since we're talking about him, his name was uh Joseph uh Mullendore, and uh this was the only time he did any music for star trek but uh the the producers felt like maybe this needed something this we needed different music for this than what they normally play uh in the star trek episode so that's why they brought in somebody else as opposed to you know alexander courage or any of the other guys they normally brought in frank keller was the editor on this one he was the uh emergency fourth editing team on the show uh but this would be the last one that he would edit he would then next year go on to win an oscar for steven queen's bullet <laughs> yeah right that's a, a super high you know uh especially for the 60s card chase movie with lots of editing in that one so you can only imagine that he got his workout on on that one uh this episode also had the lowest optical effect effects budget than any other with only a mere three thousand dollars in optical effects we get, uh, we get you know, a, a couple
0: someone shoots a phaser one time right
1: yeah and then you know the outside ships you know the outside shots of the ship
0: yeah
1: uh so this show, actually, as well, just like last week, came in under budget. This one came in under budget by $8,460. This one isn't ranked. Th- th- at the end of the chapter of the book, Cashman goes on to say that this one isn't ranked very highly in a lot of the uh, personal rankings. I know. It's very surprising. Um, I mean, I know I loved it. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, though. This is uh, one of his favorite episodes, which probably goes on to explain why there's so many Shakespeare <laughs> uh, plays in the uh, in Next Generation. Lastly, NBC did not love this episode either. They felt the show was slow and
0: betrayed the action adventure set up by previous episodes.
1: Shows what NBC knows.
0: Yeah, see, I think it's a boo-boo. I think it's good. I think it's a mistake to think that every show basically has to have the same pacing, the same organization, the same structure, the same hit the same notes. I think it's good for a show to have a few fast shows, a few slow shows, a few that are a little bit more talky, a few that are a little less talky.
1: Well, and I mean, if you think too, like Next Generation did that, I think that they were very good about switching up, yeah. you know,
0: your best of both worlds with your inner lights. I think you they know? were actually, I mean, I, I feel like Star Trek Next Generation was more like, well, we just did a fast one. Now we got to do a slow one. Oh, uh huh. They, per- they were purposely doing it. Yeah, we did one that was full of high action and lots of phasers. This one needs to be cerebral and full of lots of values. Interesting
1: uh well I, that's all i got for this episode anything we missed anything you want to say
0: no i think we hit all the uh hit all the targets love it awesome <laughs> well next week we're going to be
1: doing galileo 7 so that'll be uh super fun a lot more uh mccoy bone stuff in that one right now
0: that we've introduced the shuttlecraft we're gonna use the shuttlecraft <laughs> absolutely
1: well, thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, go over there to the iTunes and uh, leave us a little uh, comment that it can only help the show grow bigger and stronger in these first weeks. That's all we got for this one. We'll see you all next week with some awesome shuttlecraft action. Till then, my name is Matt saying goodbye. Say goodbye, Ken.
0: Peace and long life. And we'll see you all next week. I'll vamp for the audience. This is how an introvert vamps.